Chapter 4. The Unknown Things, Akeley wrote, in a script grown pitifully tremulous, had begun to close in on him with a wholly new degree of determination. The nocturnal barkings of dogs whenever the moon was dim or absent was hideous now, and there had been attempts to molest him on the lonely roads he had traversed by the day. He had found a tree trunk, had landed in his path, at a point where the highway ran through a deep patch of woods, while the savage barking of the two great dogs he had with him told all too well the things which must have been lurking near. What would have happened if the dogs had not been there? He did not dare guess, but he never went out without at least two of his faithful and powerful pack. The other road experiences had occurred on August 5th and 6th, a shot grazing his cat on one occasion, and the barking of the dogs telling of unholy woodland presence of the other. On August 15th, I received a frantic letter which disturbed me greatly, and which made me wish Akeley could put aside his lonely reticence and call in the aid of the law. There had been frightful happenings on the night of the 12th through 13th. Bullets flying outside of the farmhouse, and three of the twelve great dogs had been found shot dead in the morning. There were myriads of claw prints in the road with human prints of Walter Brown among them. Akeley had started to telephone to Rattleboro for more dogs, but the wire had gone dead before he had a chance to say much. Later, he came to Battleboro in his car and learned that Lineman had found the main telephone cable nearly cut to a point where it ran through the deserted hills north of Newfane. But he was about to start with four fine new dogs and several cases of ammunition for his big game repeating rifle. The letter was written at the post office in Brattleboro and came through to me without delay. My attitude towards the matter was by this time quickly slipping from a scientific to an alarmed personal one. I was afraid for Akeley in his remote, lonely farmhouse, half afraid for myself because of my now definite connection with strange hill problems. The things were reaching out, so would it suck me in and engulf me? In replying to his letter, I urged him to seek help and hinted I might take action myself if he did not. I spoke of visiting Vermont in person in spite of his wishes, and of helping him explain the situation to the proper authorities. In return, however, I received only a telegram from, from Bellows Fall, which read thus, Appreciate your position, but can do nothing. Take no action yourself, for it could only harm both. Wait for explanation. Henry Akeley. But the affair was steadily deepening. I received a shaky note from Akeley with the astonishing news that he had not only never sent the wire, but he never received the letter from me, to which it was an obvious reply. Hasty inquiries by him at Bellow Falls had brought out that message was deposited by a strange sandy-haired man with a curiously thick droning voice. Though more than this 
he did not learn. The clerk shooed him the original text, as sprawled in pencil, by the sender. But the handwriting was wholly unfamiliar. It was unnoticeable, but the signature was misspelled. A-K-E-L-Y, without the second E. Certainly, conjectures were inevitable, but amidst the obvious crisis, he did not stop to elaborate upon them. He spoke of the death of more dogs and the purchase of still others, and of exchange of gunfire, which had become a settled feature each moonless night. Brown's prints, and the prints of at least one or two more shod human figures, were now found regularly among the claw prints in the road, in the back of the farmhouse. It was Akeley admitted, a pretty bad business. And before long, he would probably have to go to live with his California son, whether or not he could sell the old place. But it was not easy to leave the only spot one could only think of home. He must try to hang on a little longer. Perhaps he could scare off the intruders, especially if he openly gave up all further attempts to penetrate their secrets. Writing Akeley once, I reviewed my offers of aid and spoke again of visiting him and helping him convince the authorities of his dire peril. In his reply, he seemed less set against the plan as his past attitude would have led me to predict. But he said he would like to hold off a little while longer, long enough to get his things in order and reconcile himself with the idea of leaving an almost morbidly cherished place. People looked sconce at his studies and speculations, and it would be better to get quietly off without setting the countryside in a turmoil and creating widespread doubts of his own sanity. He had enough, he admitted, but he wanted to make a dignified exit if he could. The letter reached me on the 28th of August, and I prepared and mailed encouraging reply, as I could. Apparently, the encouragement had effect for Wakely with fewer terrors to report when he acknowledged my notes. He was not very optimistic, though, and expressed the belief that it was only the full moon season which was holding the creatures off. He hoped that it had not been many densely clouded nights, and talked vaguely of boarding at Batterboro when the moon waned. Again, I wrote him encouragingly, but on September 5th, there came a fresh communications which had obviously crossed my letter in the mails, and to this I could not give any such hopeful response. In view of the importance, I believed I had better give him a give it in full, as best I could do from memory, of the shaky script. It ran substantially as followed. Monday. Dear Wilmarth, a rather discouraging P.S. to my last. Last night was thickly cloudy, though no rain, and not a bit of moonlight got through. Things were pretty bad, and I think the end is getting near, in spite of all we have hoped. After midnight, something landed on the roof of the house, and the dogs all rushed up to see what it was. I could hear them snapping and tearing around and then one managed to get on the roof by jumping from the low L. There was a terrible fight up there, and I heard frightful buzzing, which I'll never forget. 
and then there was a shocking smell. About the same time, bullets came through the window and nearly grazed me. I think the main line of the hill creatures had got close to the house when the dogs divided because of the roof business. What was up there, I don't know yet. But I'm afraid the creatures are learning to steer better with their space wings. I put out the light and used the windows for loopholes, and raked all along the house with rifle fire aimed just high enough not to hit the dogs. That seemed to end the business, but the morning I found great pools of blood in the yard, beside pools of green sticky stuff that had the worst odor I have ever smelled. I climbed up on the roof and found more of the sticky stuff there. Five of the dogs were killed. I'm afraid I hit one myself by aiming too low, for he was shot in the back. Now I am setting the pains the shots broke, and I'm going to Battleboro for more dogs. Guess the men at the kennels think I'm crazy. We'll drop another note later. Suppose I'll be ready for moving in a week or two, though it nearly kills me to think of it. Hastily, Akeley. But this was not the only letter from Akeley. The cross mine. On the next morning, September 6th, still another came. This time, a frantic scrawl. Unnerved me and put me at a loss what to say or do next. Again, I cannot do better than quote the text as faithfully as memory would let me. Tuesday. Clouds didn't break, so no moon again. I'm going to the Wayne anyhow. I'd have the house wired for electricity and put in a searchlight if I didn't know they'd cut the cables as fast as they could be mended. I think I'm going crazy. It may be that all I've ever written to you is a dream or madness. It was bad enough before, but this time it was too much. They talked to me last night, talked in that cursed buzzing voice, and told me things that I dare not repeat to you. I heard them plainly over the barking of the dogs, and once when they were drowned out, a human voice helped them. Keep out of this, Wilmarth. It was worse than either you or I ever suspected. They don't mean to let me get to California now. They want to take me off alive, or what theoretically and mentally amounts to alive. Not only to Yagoth, but beyond that, way outside the galaxy, and possibly beyond the last curved rim of space. I told them I wouldn't go where they wish, or in the terrible way they proposed to take me. But I'm afraid it will be no use. My place is so far out that they may come by day as well as by night, before long. Six more dogs killed, and I felt presences all along the wooded parts of the road when I drove the Battleboro today. It was a mistake for me to try and send you that phonograph record from Blackstone. Better smash the record before it's too late. We'll drop you another line tomorrow if I'm still here. Wish I could arrange to get my books and things to Battleboro and board there. I would run off without anything if I could, but something inside my mind holds me back. I can slip out to Battleboro where I ought to be safe, but I feel just as much a prisoner there as at the house and it seems to know that I couldn't get much farther, even if I dropped everything and tried. It is horrible. Don't get mixed up in this. Yours, Akeley. I did not sleep at all, the night after receiving the terrible thing, and was utterly baffled, as Akeley remaining, degree of sanity. The substance of the note was wholly insane, yet the manner of expression in his view of all that has gone before had a grimly potent quality of convincingness. Wednesday. W. 
Your letter came, but it's no use to discuss anything more. I am fully resigned. Wonder that I have even enough willpower to left to fight them off. Can't escape even if I were willing to give up everything and run. They'll get me. I had a letter from them yesterday. RFD man brought it while I was at Battleborough. Typed and postmarked Bellows Falls. Tells what they want to do with me. I can't repeat it. Look out for yourself too. Smash that record. Cloudy nights keep up and moon waning all the time. Wish I dared to get help. It might brace up my willpower. But everyone who would dare come at all would call me crazy unless there happened to be some proof. Couldn't ask people to come for no reason at all. I'm all out of touch with everybody and have been for years. But I haven't told you the worst, Wilmarth. Brace up to read this. For it will give you a shock. I'm telling you the truth, though. It is this. I have seen and touched one of the things, or part of one of the things. God, man, but it was awful. He was dead, of course. One of the dogs had it. And I found it near the kennel this morning. I tried to save it in the woodshed to convince people of the whole thing, but it had all evaporated in a few hours. Nothing left. You know, all those things in the rivers were only seen the first morning after the flood. And here's the worst. I tried to photograph it for you, but when I developed the film, there wasn't anything visible except the woodshed. What can the thing have been made of? I saw it and felt it, and they all leave footprints, and it was surely made of matter. But what kind of matter? The shape can't be described. It was a great crab with lots of pyramided, fleshy rings or knots of thick, ropey stuff covered with feelers where the man's head would be. That green, sticky stuff is its blood, or juice, and there are more of them due on Earth any minute. Walter Brown is missing, hasn't been seen loafing around any of his usual corners in the villages hereabouts. I must have got him with one of my shots, though the creatures always seem to try to take their dead and wounded away. Got into town this afternoon without any trouble, but I'm afraid they're beginning to hold off because they're sure of me. Am writing this in Battleboro, P.O. This may be goodbye. If it is, write my son George, good enough, Akeley. 176 Pleasant Street, San Diego, California. But don't come up here. Write the boy if you don't hear from me in a week, and watch the papers for news. I'm going to play my last two cards now. If I have the willpower left, first to try poison gas on the things. I've got the right chemicals and have fixed masks for myself and the dogs. And then if that doesn't work, tell the sheriff. They can lock me in a madhouse if they want to. It'll be better than what the other creatures would do. Perhaps I can get them to pay attention to the prints around the house. They are faint, but I can find them every morning. Suppose, though, police would say I fake them somehow. Or they must all think I'm a queer character. Must try to have a state policeman spend a night here and see for himself. Though it would be just like the creatures learn about it and hold off the night. They cut my wires whenever I try to telephone in the night. The linemen think it is very queer. It may testify for me if they don't go, and imagine I cut them myself. I haven't tried to keep them repaired for over a week now. I could get some of the ignorant people to testify for me about the reality of the horrors, but everybody laughs at what they say. And anyways, they have shunned my place for so long that they don't know any of the new events. You couldn't get one of those run-down farmers to come within a mile of my house for the love or money. The mail carrier hears what they say and jokes me about it. 
God, if only I dared tell them how real it is. I think I'll try and get him to notice the prince, but he comes in the afternoon, and they're usually about gone by that time. If I keep one by setting it in a box or pan over it, he'd think surely it was fake or a joke. Wish I hadn't gotten to be such a hermit. Folks don't drop around as they used to. I never dared shoo the black stone or the Kodak pictures or play that record to anybody but the ignorant people. The others would say I fake the whole business and do nothing but laugh. But I may yet try chewing the pictures. They give those claw prints clearly, even if the things that made them can't be photographed. What a shame nobody else saw that thing this morning before it went to nothing. But I don't know as I care. After what I've been through, a madhouse is a good place to stay as any. The doctors can help me make up my mind as to get away from this house. And that is all that will save me. Write my son George if you don't hear soon. Goodbye. Smash that record. And don't mix up in this. Yours, Akeley. The letter, frankly, purged me into the blackest of terror. I did not know what to say in answer, but scratched off some incoherent words of advice and encouragement and sent them by registered mail. I recall urging Akeley to move to Batterboro at once and place himself under protection of the authorities, adding that I could come to that town with the phonograph record and help convince the courts of insanity. It was time to, I think, I wrote, to alarm the people generally against this thing in their midst. It will be observed at this moment. All of the stress of my own belief in all Akeley had told and claimed was virtually complete. Though I did not think his failure to get a picture of the dead monster was not due to any freak of nature, but to some excited slip of his own. Chapter 5. Then, apparently crossing my incoherent notes and reaching me Sunday afternoon, September 8th, came the curiously different and calming letter neatly typed on a new machine. That strange letter of reassurance and invitation which must have marked so prodigiously a transition in the whole nightmare drama of the Lonely Hills. Again, I will quote from memory, seeking for special reasons to preserve as much of the flavor of the style as I can. It was postmarked, Bellow Falls, and the signature as well. The body of the letter was typed, as frequent with beginners in typing. The text, though, was marvelously accurate for the Tyro's work and I concluded that Akeley must have used a machine at some previous period, perhaps in college. To say that the letter relieved me would be only fair, yet beneath my relief laid a stratum of uneasiness. If Akeley had been sane in his terror, he was now sane in his deliverance, and it was a sort of improved rapport mentioned. What was it? The entire thing implied such a diametrical reversal of Akeley's previous attitude. But here was the substance of the text, carefully transcribed from a memory, in which I take some pride. My dear Wilmerth, it gives me great pleasure to be able to set you at rest regarding all the silly things I've been writing to you. I say silly, although by that I mean my frightened attitude rather than my descriptions of certain phenomena. Those phenomena are real and important enough. My mistake had been in establishing an anomalous attitude toward them. 
I think I mentioned that my strange visitors were beginning to communicate with me, and to attempt such communication. Last night, this exchange of speech became actual. In response to certain signals, I admitted to the house, a messenger from those outside, a fellow human, let me hasten to say. He told me much that neither you nor I had begun to guess, and shewed clearly how totally we had misjudged and misinterpreted the purpose of the Outer Ones in maintaining their secret colony on this planet. It seems that the evil legends about what they have offered to men, and what they wish in connection with the Earth, are wholly the result of an ignorant misconception of allegorical speech. Speech, of course, molded by cultural backgrounds and thought habits vastly different from anything we dream of. My own conjectures, I freely own, shot as widely past the mark as any of the guesses of illiterate farmers and natives. What I had thought morbid and shameful and ignominious was in reality awesome and mind-expanding and even glorious. My previous estimate being merely the phase of man's eternal tendency to hate and fear and shrink from the utterly different. Now I regret the harm I have inflicted upon these alien and incredible beings in the course of our nightly skirmishes. If only I had consented to talk peacefully and reasonably with them in the first place. But they bear me no grudge, their emotions being organized very differently from ours. It is their misfortune to have had their human agents in Vermont some very inferior specimens. The late Walter Brown, for example, he prejudiced me vastly against them. Actually, they have never knowingly harmed men, but have often been cruelly wronged and spied upon by our species. There is a whole secret cult of evil men, a man of your mystical erudition, will understand me when I link them with Hastur and the Yellow Sign devoted to the purpose of tracking them down and injuring them on behalf of monstrous powers from other dimensions. It is against these aggressors, not against normal humanity, that the drastic precautions of the Outer Ones are directed. Incidentally, I learned that many of our lost letters were stolen not by the Outer Ones, but by the emissaries of this malign cult. All the Outer Ones' wish of man is peace and non-molestation, and an increasing intellectual rapport. This latter is absolutely necessary now that our inventions and devices are expanding our knowledge and motions, and making it more and more impossible for the Outer Ones' necessary outposts to exist secretly on this planet. The alien beings desire to know mankind more fully, and to have a few of mankind's philosophic and scientific leaders know more about them. With such an exchange of knowledge, all perils will pass, and a satisfactory modus vivendi be established. The very idea of any attempt to enslave or degrade mankind is ridiculous. As a beginning of this improved rapport, the Outer Ones have naturally chosen me, whose knowledge of them is already so considerable as their primary interpreter on Earth. Much has told me last night, facts of the most stupendous and vista-opening nature, and more will be subsequently communicated to me both orally and in writing. I shall not be called upon to make any trip outside just yet, though I shall probably wish to do that later on. Employing special means and transcending everything which we have hitherto been accustomed to regard as human experience, 
My house will be besieged no longer. Everything has reverted to normal, and the dogs will have no further occupation. In place of terror, I have given a rich boon of knowledge and intellectual adventure which few other mortals have ever shared. The outer beings are perhaps the most marvelous organic things in or beyond all space and time. Members of a cosmos-wide space with all other life forms are merely degenerate variants. They are more vegetable than human. A somewhat fungoid structure, though the presence of a chlorophyll-like substance and a very singular nutritive system differentiate them altogether from true chromophytic fungi. Indeed, the type is composed of a form of matter totally alien to our part of space, with electrons having wholly different vibration rate. This is why the beings cannot be photographed on ordinary camera films and plates of our known universe, even though our eyes can see them. With proper knowledge, however, any good chemist can make a photographic emulsion which could record their images. The genus is unique in its ability to traverse the heatless and airless interstellar void in full corporeal form, and some of its variants cannot do this without mechanical aid or curious surgical transpositions. Only a few species have the either-resisting wings characteristic of the Vermont variety. Those inhabiting certain remote peaks in the Old World were brought in other ways their external resemblance to animal life, and to the sort of structure we understand as material, is a matter of parallel evolution rather than of close kinship. The brain capacity exceeds that of any other surviving life form, although the winged types of our hill country are by no means the most highly developed. Telepathy is their usual means of discourse, though they have rudimentary vocal organs, which after a slight operation, Forest Surgery is an incredible expert in everyday thing among them, can roughly duplicate the screech of certain types of organisms as still use speech. Their main immediate abode is a still undiscovered and almost lightless planet at the very edge of our solar system, beyond Neptune and the ninth in distance from the sun. It is, as we have inferred, the object mystically hinted at as a goth, in certain ancient and forbidden writings, and it will soon be the scene of a strange focusing of thought upon our world in an effort to facilitate mental rapport. I would not be surprised if astronomers became sufficiently sensitive to these thought currents to discover Yagoth when the other Outer Ones wish them to do so. But Yagoth, of course, is only the stepping stone. The main body of the beings inhabits strangely organized abysses wholly beyond the utmost reach of any human imagination. The space-time globule, which we recognize as the totality of all cosmic entity, is only an atom in the genuine infinity which is theirs. And as much of this infinity as any human brain can hold is eventually to be opened up to me, as it has been to not more than 50 other men since the human race has existed. Their main immediate abode is a still undiscovered and almost lightless planet at the very edge of our solar system, beyond Neptune and the ninth in distance from the sun. It is, as we have inferred, the object mystically hinted at as a goth, in certain ancient and forbidden writings. 
and it will soon be the scene of a strange focusing of thought upon our world in an effort to facilitate mental rapport. I would not be surprised if astronomers became sufficiently sensitive to these thought currents to discover Yagoth when the other outer ones wish them to do so. The main body of the beings inhabits strangely organized abysses wholly beyond the utmost reach of any human imagination. The space-time globule, which we recognize as the totality of all cosmic entity, is only an atom in the genuine infinity which is theirs. And as much of this infinity as any human brain can hold is eventually to be opened up to me, as it has been to not more than 50 other men since the human race has existed. The train service to Battleboro is not bad. You can get a timetable in Boston, take the B&M to Greenfield, then change for a brief remainder of the way. I suggest you're taking the convenient 4.10 p.m. standard from Boston. This gets to Greenfield at 7.35, and at 9.19, a train leaves there which reaches Battleboro at 10.01. That is weekdays. Let me know the date, and I'll have my car on hand at the station. Pardon this typed letter, but my handwriting has grown shaky as of late, as you know, and I don't feel equal to long stretches of script. I got this new corona in Battleboro yesterday, and it seems to work very well. Awaiting word and hoping to see you shortly with the photograph record and all my letters and the Kodak prints. I am yours in anticipation, Henry W. Akeley, to Albert N. Wilmarth, Esquire, Miskatonic University, Arkham, Massachusetts. The complexity of my emotions upon reading, rereading, and pondering over this strange and unlooked for letter is past adequate description. I have said that I was at once relieved and made uneasy. But this expresses only crudely the overtone of diverse and largely subconscious feelings which, which comprise both the relief and the uneasiness. To begin with, Thing was so antipodically at variance with the whole chain of horror preceding it. The change of mood was so unheralded, lightning-like, and complete. I could scarcely believe that a single day could so alter the psychological perspective of one who had written that final frenzied bulletin of Wednesday, no matter the relieving disclosure that day may have brought. At certain moments, a sense of conflicting unrealities made me wonder whether this whole distantly reported drama of fantastic forces was not a kind of halfway illusionary dream created largely within my own mind. Then I thought of the phonograph record and gave way to still greater bewilderment. The letter seemed so unlike anything which could have been expected. As I analyzed my impression, I saw that it consisted of two distinct phases. First, granting that Akeley had been sane before and was still sane. It indicated a change in the situation itself, so swift and unthinkable. And secondly, the change in Akeley's own manner, attitude, and language was so vastly beyond the normal or the predictable. The man's whole personality seemed to have undergone an insidious mutation, a mutation so deep that one could scarcely reconcile his two aspects 
with the supposition that both represented equal sanity. Word choice, spelling, all were subtly different. And with my academic sensitiveness to prose style, I could trace two profound divergences in his commonest reactions and rhythm responses. Certainly, the emotional cataclysm or revelation which could have produced so radical an overturn must be an extreme indeed. Yet another way, the letter seems quite characteristics of Akeley. The other old passion for infinity, the same old scholarly inquisitiveness, I could at not a moment, or more than a moment, credit the idea of spuriousness or malign supposition. Did not the invitation, the willingness to have me test the truth of the letter in person prove its genuineness? I did not retire Sunday night, but set up thinking about the shadows and marvels behind the letter I received, my mind aching from the quick succession of monstrous conceptions it had been forced to confront during the last four months, worked upon this startling new material in a cycle of doubt and acceptance, which repeated most of the steps experienced in facing the earlier wonders, until before dawn a burning interest and curiosity had begun replacing the original storm of perplexity and uneasiness. Mad or sane, metamorphosed or merely relieved, the chance were that Akeley had actually encountered some stupendous change of perspective in his hazardous research, some change at once diminishing his danger, real or fancied, in opening dizzy new vistas of cosmic and superhuman knowledge. My own zeal for the unknown flared up to meet his, and I felt myself touched by the contagion of the morbid barrier breaking to shake off the maddening and weary limitations of time and space and natural law to be linked with the vast outside to come close with the knighted and abysmal secrets of the infinite and the ultimate surely a thing was worth the risk of one own life soul and sanity and Akeley had said there was no longer any peril he had invited me to visit him instead of warning me away as before I tingled at the thought of what he might now have to tell me. There was almost a paralyzing fascination in the thought of sitting in that lonely and lately beleaguered farmhouse with a man who had talked with actual emissaries from outer space, sitting there with the terrible record in the pile of letters in which Akeley had summarized his earlier conclusions. So late Sunday morning, I telegraphed Akeley that I would meet him at Battleboro the following Wednesday, September 12th, and if that date was convenient towards him, in only one respect did I depart from his suggestion, and that concerned the choice of a train. Frankly, I did not feel like arriving at that haunted Vermont region late at night, so instead of accepting the train he chose, I telephoned the station and devised another arrangement. By rising early and talking and taking the 8.07 a.m., standard to Boston so I could catch the 925 to Greenville and arriving there at 12.22 noon. This connected exactly with a train reaching Brattleboro at 1.08 p.m. Much more comfortable than the hour of 
for meeting Angley, riding with him into that close pack, Secret Guarding Hills. I mentioned this choice in my telegram and was glad to learn in the reply, which came towards evening, that it had met with my prospective host's endorsement. His wire ran thus. Arrangement satisfactory. We'll meet at 108 train Wednesday. Don't forget record and letters and prints. Keep destination quiet. Expect great revelations. Akeley. Receipt of this message in direct response to the one sent to Akeley and necessarily delivered to his house from Townshen Station, either by official messenger or by the restored telephone service, removed any lingering subconscious doubts. I must have had about the authorship of the perplexing letter. My relief was marked. Indeed, it was greater than I could account for at the time, since all of the doubts had been deeply buried. But I slept sound and long that night, and was eagerly busy with preparations during the ensuing two days. Chapter 6. On Wednesday, I started, as agreed, taking with me a valise full of simple necessities and scientific data, including the hideous phonograph record, the Kodak prints, and the entire files of Akeley's correspondence. As requested, I had told no one where I was going, for I could see the matter demanded utmost privacy, even allowing for its most favorable terms. The thought of actual menial contact with alien outside entities was stupefying enough to my trained and somewhat prepared mind. And this being so, what might one think of its effect on the vast masses of the uninformed layman? I do not know whether dread or adventurous expectancy was utmost to me as I changed trains in Boston and began the long westward run out of familiar regions to those I knew less thoroughly. Waltman, Concord, Ayer, Benchburg, Gardner, and Athol. My train reached Greenfield seven minutes late, but northbound Connecting Express had been held. Transferring in haste, I felt a curious breathlessness as the cars rumbled on through the earthly afternoon sunlight into territories I always read of, but never before visited. I knew I was entering altogether older-fashioned and more primitive New England than the mechanized, urbanized, coastal, and southern areas of all my life had been spent, an unspoiled, ancestral New England, without the foreigners and factory smoke billboard and concrete road of sections which modernity had touched. There would be the odd survivals of which modernity had touched. There would be odd survivals of the continued native life whose deep root made it one authentic outgrowth of landscape. The continuous native life which kept alive strange ancient memories and fertilizes the soil for shadowy marvelous and seldom mentioned beliefs. Now and then, I saw the blue Connecticut River gleaming in the sun, and after leaving Northfield, we crossed it. Ahead loomed green and cryptical hills, 
And when the conductor came around, I learned that I was at last in Vermont. He told me to set my watch an hour back, since the Northern Hill country has no dealing with newfangled daylight saving schemes. As I did, it seemed to me I was likewise turning the calendar back a century. The train kept close to the river, and across in New Hampshire, I could see the approaching slope of the deep Quantasicate, about which singular old legends cluster. Then streets appear. On my left, a green island shooed in the stream. Only on my right, people rose and filled in the doors. I followed them. The car stopped. I aligned beneath the long train shed of the Battleboro station. Looking over the line of waiting motors, I hesitated a moment to see one which might turn out to be Akeley Ford, but my identity was defined before I could take the initiative, and yet it was clearly not Akeley himself who advanced to meet me with an outstretched hand and a mellowly phrased query as to whether I was indeed Mr. Albert N. Wilmarth of Arkham. This man bore no resemblance to the bearded, grizzled Akeley of the Stackjot, but was a younger and more urban person, fashionably dressed, wearing only a small dark mustache. His cultivated voice held an odd and almost disturbing hint of vague familiarity, though I could not definitely place it in my memory. As I surveyed him, I heard him explaining that he was a friend of my prospective host who had come down from Townshed in his steed. Akeley, he declared, had suffered a sudden attack of some asthmatic troubles and did not feel equal to make a trip in the outdoor air. It was not serious, however, but there was be no change in the plans regarding my visit. I could not make out just how much this Mr. Noise, as he announced himself, knew of Akeley's researches and discoveries, though it seemed to me that his casual manner stamped him a comparative outsider. Remembering what a hermit Akeley had been, I was a trifle surprised at the ready availability at such a friend, but did not let my puzzlement deter me from entering the motor to which he gestured me. It was not the small ancient car I expected from Akeley's depictions, but a large, immaculate specimen of twice pattern, apparently noise own, and bearing Massachusetts license plate with the amusing sacred codfish device of that year. My guide, I concluded, must be a summer transient in the townshed area. Noise climbed into the car beside me and started at once. I was glad he did not overflow with conversation, for some particular atmospheric intensity made me feel disinclined to talk. The town seemed very attractive in the afternoon sunlight as we swept up in an incline and turned to the right in the main street. It drows like older New England cities, which one remembers from boyhood, and something in the co-location of the roofs and steeples and, st and chimneys and brick walls formed contours, touching deep feel strings of ancestral emotion. I could tell that 
I was at the gateway of a region half-bewitched through the piling of unbroken time accumulation, a region where old strange things have had a chance to grow and linger because they had never been stirred up. We passed out of Brattleboro. My sense of constraint and foreboding increased, for a vague quality in the hill-crowned countryside, with its towering, threatening, close-pressed green and granite slopes, hinted at obscure secrets and immemorial survivals, which might or might not be hostile to mankind. For a time, our course followed a broad, shallow river which flowed down from unknown hills in the north. I shivered when my companion told me that it was West River. It was in this stream, I recalled from newspaper items, that one of the morbid crab-like beings had been seen floating after the floods. Gradually, the country around it grew wilder and more deserted. Archaic covered bridges lingered fearsomely out of the past in pockets of the hills. An half-abandoned railway track paralleling the river seemed to exhale a nebulously visible air of desolation. There were awesome sweeps of the vivid valley where cliffs rose, New England's virgin granite showing gray and austere through the verdure that scaled the crest. There were gorges where untamed streams leaped, bearing down towards the river. The unimagined secrets of a thousand pathless peaks branching away, and from there, branching away now and then, were narrow, half-concealed roads that bore their way through solid, luxuriant masses of forest among those among whose primal trees whole armies of elemental spirits might lurk. As I saw these, I thought of how Akeley had been molested by unseen agents on his drive along this very route, and did not wonder that such things could be. Quaint, slightly village of Newfane, reached in less than half an hour, was our last link of that world which man could definitely call his own by virtue of conquest and complete occupancy. After that, we cast off all allegiance to immediate, tangible, and time-touched things, and entered the fantastic world of hushed unreality, which the narrow ribbon-like road rose and fell and curved with an almost sentient and purpose carapace. Amidst the tenantless green peaks and half-deserted valleys, except for the sound of the motor and the faint stirring of the few lonely farms we passed at infrequent, at infrequent intervals. The only thing that reached my ears was the gurgling, insidious trickle of strange waters from numberless hidden fountains in the shadowy woods. The nearness and intimacy of the dwarfed domed hills now became invariably breathtaking. Their steepness and abruptness were even greater than I imagined from hearsay, and suggested none in common with the prosaic objective world we knew. The dense unvisited woods on those inaccessible floats seemed to harbor alien and incredible things, 
and I felt that the very outlines of the hills themselves held some strange and aeon-forgotten meaning, as if they were vast hieroglyphs left by the rumored titan races who glories only live in rare deep dreams. All the legend of the past and the stupefying impotences of Henry Akeley's letters and exhibit welled up in my memory to heighten the atmosphere of tension and growing menace. The purpose of my visit and the frightful abnormalities it postulated struck me at once all a chill sensation that nearly overbalanced my ardour for strange dwellings. My guide must have noticed my disturbed attitude, for the road grew more wilder and more irregular, and our motion slower and more jolting. His occasional pleasant comment expanded into a steadier flow of discourse. He spoke of the beauty and weirdness of the country, and revealed some acquaintances with folklore and studies of my prospective host. From his polite question, it was obvious he knew I had come for a scientific purpose, in, and that I was bringing data of some importance, but he gave no signs of appreciating the depths and wakefulness of the knowledge which Akeley had finally reached. His manner, so cheerful, normal, and urbane, that his remarks ought to have calmed and reassured me. But oddly enough, I felt only the more disturbed as we bumped and veered onward onto the unknown wilderness of hills and wood. At times it seemed as if he was bumping me to see what I knew of the monstrous secrets of the place, and with every fresh utterance, that vague, teasing, baffling familiarity in his voice increased. It was not an ordinary or healthy familiarity, despite the thorough, wholesome, and cultivated nature of the voice. I somehow linked it with forgotten nightmares and felt that I might go mad if I recognized it. If any good excuse existed, I think I would have turned back from my visit. As it was, I could not well do, and it occurred to me that a cool scientific conversation with Akeley himself after my arrival would help greatly pull me together. Besides, there was a strangely calming element to the cosmic beauty in the hypnotic landscape which we climbed and plunged fantastically. Time has lost itself in the labyrinths now behind and around us stretched only the flowering waves of fairy and the recaptured loveliness of vanished centuries. The hoary groves, the untainted pastures, edged with gay, upturnal blossom, and at vast intervals, the small brown farmsteads nestling amongst huge trees beneath vertical precipices of fragrant briar and meadow grasses. Even the sunlight assumed a supernatural glamour, as if some special atmosphere or exhalation mantled the whole region. I had felt like nothing before it, save in the magic vistas that sometimes form the backgrounds of Italian primitive Sondona and in Leonardo conceived such expanses, but only in the distances and through the vaultings of Renaissance arcades. We were now burrowing boldly 
through the midst of the picture, and I seemed to follow its necromancy, a thing I had intimately known or inherited, for which I had always been vainly searching. Suddenly, after rounding an obtuse angle on the top of a sharp accent, the car came to a standstill. On my left, across a well-kept lawn, which stretched to the road, flaunted a border of whitewashed stone, rose a white two-and-a-half-story house of unusual size and elegance for the region with a congeries of congeries, or arcade-ling barn, sheds, windmills behind and to the right. I recognized it at once from the snapshot, and I received from the snapshot I received, I was not surprised to see the name of Henry Akeley in the galvanized iron mailbox near the road. For some disturbances, back of the house, a level stench of marshy and sparsely wooded area extended, beyond which soared a steep, thickly forested hillside, ending in a jagged leafy crest. This ladder, I knew, was the summit of Dark Mountain, halfway up, which we must have climbed already. A light from the car, and taking my valise, Noise asked me to wait while he went inside and notified Akeley of my advent. He himself, he added, had an important business elsewhere. It would not stop for more than a moment. As he briskly walked up the path to the house, I climbed out of the car myself, wishing to stretch my legs a little before settling down in a sedentary conversation. My feeling of nervousness and tension had risen to a maximum again, now that I was on the actual scene of the morbid, beleaguering, described so hauntedly in Akeley's letters. I honestly dreaded the coming discussions, which were to link me with such alien and forbidden worlds. Close contact with the utterly bizarre is more often terrifying than inspiring, but it did not cheer me to think that this very bit of dusty road was the place whose monstrous tracks and bedded green ichor could be found after moonless night of fear and death. Idly, I noticed that none of Akeley's dogs seemed to be about. Had he sold all of them as soon as the elder ones made peace with them? Might as I try, I could not have the same confidence in the depth of sincerity of that beast, which appeared in Akeley's final and queerly different letter. After all, he was a man of much simplicity, with little worldly experience. Was there not, perhaps, some deep and sinister undercurrent beneath the surface of the new alliance? Led by my thoughts, my eyes turned downward to the powdery road surface which had held such hideous testimonies. The last few days had been dry, and the tracks of all sorts cluttered the rutted irregular highway, despite the infrequent nature of the district. With a vague curiosity, I had begun to trace the outline of some of the heterogeneous impressions, trying to curb the flights of macabre fancy which the place in its memory suggested. There was something menacing and uncomfortable in the funeral stillness, in the muffled subtle tracks of distant brooks and the crowding green peaks and the black wooded precipices that choked the narrow horizon. And then an image shot to my consciousness which made those vague memories and flights of fancy 
seemed mild and insignificant indeed. I had said that I was scanning the malice, miscellaneous prints in the road with some kind of idle curiosity. But then, all at once, the curiosity was shockingly snuffed out by a sudden and paralyzing gust of active terror. For though the dust tracks were, in general, confused and overlapping, and unlikely to arrest any casual glance, my restless vision had caught certain details near the spot of the path to the house adjoined the highway, and recognized beyond a doubt or hopes the frightful significance of those details. It was not for nothing at last that I poured for hours over the Kodak views of the Outer One claw prints which Jakely had sent. Too well I knew the marks of those loathsome nippers and the hint of ambiguous direction which stamped the horrors as no creature of this planet. No chance had left me for merciful mistake. Here indeed, in objective form before my own eyes, surely made not merely hours ago were at least three marks which stood out blasphemously among this surprising plethora of blurred footprints leading to and from the Akeley farmhouse. There were the hellish tracks of the living fungi from Yagoth. I pulled myself together in time to stifle a scream. After all, what more was there than I might expect it? Assuming that I really believed Akeley's letters, he had spoken of making peace with the thing. Why then, was it strange that some of them had visited his house? But the terror was stronger than the reassurance. Could any man be expected to look unmoved for the first time upon the cloth marks of animate beings from outer depth of space? Just then, I saw noise emerge from the door and approach with a brisk step. I must, I reflected, keep command of myself, for the chance this genial friend knew nothing of Akeley's profoundest and most stupendous probing into the forbidden. Akeley, noise, hastened to inform me, was glad and ready to see me. Although his sudden attack of asthma would prevent him from being a very competent host for a day or two, these spells hit him hard when they came and they were almost accompanied by debilitating fever and general weakness. He was never good for much while they lasted, and had talked in a whisper, and was very clumsy and feeble in getting about. His feet and ankles swelled too, so that he had to bandage them like a gouty old beefeater. Today, he was in rather a bad shape, so that I might have to attend very largely to my own needs. But. He was none the less eager for conversation. I would find him in the study at the left of the front hall, the room where the blinds were shut. He had to keep sunlight out when he was ill, for his eyes were very sensitive. As noise bade me do and rode off northward in his car, I began to walk slowly towards the house. The door had been left ajar for me, but before approaching and entering, I cast a searching glance around the whole place, trying to decide what had struck me though intangibly queer about it. The barns and shit looked trimly prosaic enough, and I noticed Akeley's battered cord in his capricious, unguarded shelter. Then, the secret of the queerness reached me. It was the total silence. Ordinarily, a farm is at least moderately murmurous from the various kinds of livestock 
But here all signs of life were missing. What of the hens and the hog? The crows, which Akeway had said he possessed several, might conceivably be out the pasture, and the dog might possibly be been sold, but the absence of any cackling or grunting was singularly particular. I did not pause long on the path, but resolutely entered the open house door and closed it behind me. It had a cost. It had cost me a distinct psychological effort to do so, and now that I was shut inside, I had a momentary longing for a precipitate retreat. Not for the place was in the most sinister in visual suggestion. On the contrary, I thought the graceful late colonial hallway was very tasteful and wholesome, and admired the evident breeding of the man who had furnished it. What made me wish to flee was something very attuned and indefinable. Perhaps there was a certain odd odor, which I thought I noticed. Well, though I well knew how common musty odors were even in the best of ancient farmhouses.